Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What have I got? You and my brother at the university. <laughs> I want to go to Spain. Renee, you just came back from London. I did. You were in Wimbledon for almost three weeks, commentating, recording Racket Magazine podcasts, but also playing. Yes, I played a little tennis the second week in the ladies' invitational, as we like to call it in the locker room, the old farts. Um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I was busy the first week with you doing work for, obviously, with my day job there, working for ESPN, and then grabbing people for the podcast for Racket Magazine, and then the second week, I get to play a little bit of tennis. I... I had an amazing dive in the final. I still have the scab on my knee and bruise on my hand to prove it. But it provided uh, one of those moments that, you know, I get to talk about a little bit for a couple of months. My friends will hate it, but too bad. In the second set, were you and partner Kim Kleister's yes. most recent guest on the pod facing off against Martina Navratilova and Kara Black, last year's champions, the dive that needs to be seen to be believed. Go look <laughs> it up. It's insane. Full stretch. That point is insane. And everybody was involved. Yeah, yeah, everybody was involved. It was so much fun. I mean, uh, I think the crowd enjoyed it. But for me, I mean, it just, everyone's like, how do you do that? I'm like, it, I don't know. It just comes naturally to me. Because if I can dive at any time on a tennis court, I will do it. And I had to, to try and get this ball back. So it, it was a lot of fun. Well, congratulations on your win. One thing you did without me, because I was gone, was win the tournament with Kim Kleisters. But you also sat down with probably my favorite mother of all time. This Wimbledon was a lot about mothers, Victoria. Azarenka, Serena, obviously a new mother coming back to tour. There were six mothers in the singles draw. Six women. mothers in the Six. Mother. And the mother of them all, Judy Murray. Yeah. Judy Murray, Scottish, mother of Jamie Murray, number one doubles player who made the final with Victoria Azarenka, obviously mother of number one singles player, Andy Murray. Yeah. What was it like to talk with her? I love Judy so much. We, uh, Whenever we can get an hour or two, we need probably five to six hours when we talk because we just have such a passion and that's the running theme really for our podcast is the word passion. And Judy just has so much passion for the game of tennis, um, particularly you know trying to get equality for women, uh, whether it be the story she told me about what she wanted for her Fed Cup team and what she didn't get and what the men were getting and all kinds of stories. We obviously know that Andy employed Emily Moresmo and that was a big deal, but you know that's the influence of having someone like Judy, his mom, in, in his life. Um, and I just love her. The passion for what she does, she drives a van around Scotland, she'll tell you about what that is and promoting the game of tennis and she just is a really great person. 
Well, I'm delighted you got on the podcast. For me personally, she is my idol. I want to grow up and have a son as great as Andy and Jamie and be as cool and as gracious and as funny as she is. So listen up. Here is our interview with Judy Martin. Okay, so this morning I get an email. I want to talk to you about this a little bit. So I got an email this morning from um, two people, and one of them was one was pretty abusive. The second one was very abusive about me being an ultra feminist, and it was just every name you can imagine um, under the sun, sort of going at me about my just just a just a basic comment about um, the men finishing their semi final and uh, what time, and and I wasn't really being tough I was just sort of throwing it out there to the ether you have two young men that are so awesome and you know Jamie and both Andy have been super positive with the feminist part of you know obviously Andy hiring Emily Moresmo was such a big deal how do you raise boys that don't do things like write women online anonymously abusive emails how do you raise boys like that well I mean I think we're all products of our environment so you know and everybody grows up, everybody has a mum, you know, so mm -hmm. the mums, for me, always should be the strong figures um, in, in the family in, in whatever way they feel is their way to, to, to parent. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that I did anything specific um, other than, you know, when, when I was coaching, when I was the Scottish national coach, I had as many girls as boys in my programme and I was always leading the program, so they got they were always used to sort of I suppose me kind of leading everything. Yeah. Um, but they were also always used to girls being around, and because when you have a female coach in a key role, you will always get um, as much priority given to the girls as the boys. You don't necessarily have that if you have a male coach in a key role, because I've always said it that men will always think and act first on behalf of men so mm -hmm. generally speaking male coaches find boys easier to deal with because they identify with them I think that's just natural mm -hmm. so it's one of the, the reasons why I'm, I'm still really trying very hard to grow a bigger female workforce bigger and stronger career pathway more women working at the top end of the game but um, I, th I mean they they're good kids but they're respectful to everybody not just women and I don't think either of them would call themselves a feminist I, th I always think feminist sounds a bit almost like a little bit aggressive, a little mm -hmm. bit us and them, mm -hmm. but they are supporters of women. Equality. Yeah, and equality and fairness. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, for me, it's just fairness. And they probably have both, over the years, seen the challenges that I've had to deal with of being mm -hmm. a woman working in a man's sporting world and how much harder you have to work to make your voice uh, heard or make your presence felt or to make things happen on the women's side of the game. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when, when I did Fed Cup, um, with GB the first time in 2012 I had to really fight to bring a video analyst with us I wanted to do the whole thing well and my team was, I was the coach and the captain I had a kind of a, a co-manager um, and I had a fitness trainer and a physio and I wanted a video analyst because I wanted to create opportunities for, to build a team behind the team mm -hmm. who could grow with us yeah. um, and I really fought for it and I was told, but you've already got four of you going with the team. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I was at a Davis Cup match two months ago and there were 19 people oh on God. the bench. So why? I'm only asking for a one. fourth one. You just want one. <laughs> you just want you know? one. So that was the first of my sort of thinking, you know, I'm going to have to really fight for everything. But, yeah, I mean, I think, I think probably my kids have seen 
yeah. the world according to women through me and what I tried to set up in Scotland and how hard it is to sort of find support for for, for what you're doing and um, I mean they're they're both great they both watch a lot of women's tennis especially mm-hmm. Andy he's a real student of, of everything tennessee mm-hmm. and he isn't afraid to use his voice and because he's smart and he thinks about what he says it makes a huge impact when a, one of the top men speaks out on behalf of the women. Of More of an impact than a woman doing it, sadly. That yeah. is just the, the way that it is. But I'm very glad he, he, he does because when he took Amelie Moresmo on to be his coach in 2013, you know, it created really a, a, bit, of, a bit of a shitstorm in mm-hmm. certain areas, yeah. but a, a huge amount of interest and speculation. Um, and now Emily's the the Davis Cup exactly. captain. Exactly. So maybe that's the catalyst you need. Yeah. You need someone like an Andy. Um, why don't why why aren't there more women coaches just in general on tour? Do you think? Like, what's the thought process for you? In, I mean, we've seen it over the last couple of years with great results with Conchita Martinez with Muguruza last year, and then all of a sudden she's gone, which I don't understand. Um, and then you've got you know Lindsay Davenport back in the game. Are, are you going to see? Well, are you going to see more of the top? women players and why don't we well I would love to see that happening because I think that when when Andy took on Ivan Lendl it was like Ivan was the the missing link of what Andy needed to convert getting to slam finals and being in the top three or four players why was it was it mental or was it work ethic or was it I I know Andy works as hard as anybody but what was the difference maker there it was the difference of having somebody who'd been there and done it and Mm -hmm. knew what it felt like to prepare for a slam to to be in a final to lose a final to win a final somebody who knows what the athlete is going through Mm -hmm. you can't replicate that nobody else around Andy would have any clue what that felt like Mm -hmm. to be able to help him to deal with what he was going to face and it was a respect on what he was saying and he oh, trusted massive, it. massive respect because he's been there and done it. Um, there were lots of ways in which Ivan influenced him. But having somebody in your corner who you know knows what you're going through, who knows how to help you, if they know you well enough as a person, yep. they find the right way to help you because they understand the situation. So that actually opened the door to many other male players yeah. bringing in ex-players but when Andy worked with Amelie it opened I think the door or the eyes of the female players to actually you know Martina went to work with Radvanska for mm-hmm. a while yep. Lindsay with Madison Keys yep. Anna Novotna was around yep. there was a number of them and I thought this is great um, but it stagnated a little bit it has stagnated a little bit but I and I, I, I noticed um, when I started doing Fed Cup and I went to the WTA event in Auckland first event I went to with the girls and I sat in the player lounge on the first morning and I watched everybody coming through and that's when it hit me there, where are the female coaches? There yeah. just literally weren't any. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I mean, one obviously is the obvious one that you have to be on the road for 30, mm-hmm. 35 weeks of the year. That certainly wouldn't suit women who have families, families. Yeah. for sure. I think the other thing is that um, is the cost of having a coach on the road and really only the very top players can afford to have an entourage of yeah. everybody around them. Yeah. For for most of the others from maybe 20, 30 down to 100 or so, if you're lucky if you can afford to have a coach because many people for, forget that tennis players like golfers or anybody in an individual Pay sport, everything. you're responsible for all your own costs and those yeah. costs are massive on a weekly basis. Yeah. I say it's like going on holiday every week but without the fun. Yeah. You're working. <laughs> so you live or die by your success or not. Yeah. So making the pennies 
work for you. It's tough. It's yeah. really tough. So yeah, I Todd can, Woodbridge said one time in our podcast that he had to get rid of the coach to have the nanny in his yeah. last couple of years. And he was make, making decent money. You have to money. make those tough, those tough choices. Yeah. You know, what's the most important thing? Do I have a part-time physio or a part-time fitness trainer? Actually, you need both because yeah. if you work hard physically, you need the physio to look after your body. So it can become an incredibly expensive business. But on the on the male coach side... You find a lot of the girls choosing male coaches. Well, there are more male coaches to choose from. Twenty-one percent of coaches worldwide, apparently, are women. So that therefore, seventy-nine percent are, are men. So there's not as many to choose from, and there isn't a career pathway that you know for for women who want to and are mm-hmm. good enough to to mm-hmm. reach the top. I don't know any federation that's got a female coach pathway that. Are you going to change that? You. Are you changing? Yeah, it? we're trying, trying to. to. We are trying to, as you know, we're trying really hard and in uh, Great Britain to, to build a bigger workforce, build the base first, but to ensure that those who have the potential and want to work at the top of the game have got the opportunities and the support to, to go there. But to go back to the, the, the male coach point, everybody needs somebody to hit with. Yeah, Many that's of the, the women players don't want to hit with each other. Yep. They prefer to hit with a man. Mm-hmm. Somehow psychologically and emotionally for a lot of them, it keeps them secure. Mm-hmm. Because if they lose to a man in practice, it doesn't matter. Okay, but what about the... I mean, I'm going to go there. What about the, the problem we have with you know a lot of coaches you know, and players end up having relationships? I mean, that's a problem on tour. I've seen it. I've seen it with many players where they end up getting into these toxic sort of coach... Um, boyfriend girlfriend relationships and it's not healthy I mean that's a problem yeah and you can you can understand why that happens I mean I've seen with my kids the importance of emotional support yeah around what what they're doing so having family around is crucial because family generally speaking is the say, best for you yeah what's the best for you they're not being paid by you they don't rely on you for their income or their their well-being um but because of the costs of everything, you find many parents and boyfriends assuming the coach they role double up because they can't afford to pay for they can't afford to pay for both. So you make that choice like Todd did. What's more important, my emotional stability or investing in the next stage of my career? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, obviously we know your mum to to well number one. Jamie yeah. is number one in doubles, and obviously Andy in singles. Tell me something that because um, I know Andy. <clears throat> pretty well, um, just from you know being around him quite a bit. What's the one thing that gets misunderstood about him, or, or you want what one person know because nobody knows him like you? What's the one thing? I think it's his sense of humour. Um, you know, he's a very dry Scottish sense of humour, yeah. and people who understand it realise he's very droll. He, he's actually very funny. Yeah. Um, but those who don't understand it think he's like really boring and dull. And I never really get that because <laughs> I just think, and also I, maybe yeah, I'd, I'd say a sense of humour is the thing that yeah. probably gets misunderstood the most. Yeah, I, I find that about him as well. Is that he's just he's always funny. You just don't ever see it. And I think he's um, he's a great guy, as, as is Jamie. Um, obviously, and you can talk about this or not. You can tell me. I'm not going to talk about it. But the incident in Dunblane, um, Jamie was. Both of the boys were at the school. Yeah. And Jamie was at the school at the time, is that right? They were both in the school. They were at the both time. in the school yeah. at the time. So obviously, you know, sadly in the US, uh, we've had countless number of shootings at, at uh, high schools and colleges and all kinds of things. But that was a, a very tragic day for you in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that day? Yeah. Um... And, and, and also what it, uh, how it affected the boys. 
Well, it was a long time ago now. It was yeah. 22 years ago. It was Crazy. in March 1996. So the boys were sort of eight and nine. Um, Andy's class was the class that was on its way to the school gym when they discovered what was happening or what had happened. And so the whole class was dispersed across the headmaster's study and the assistant head study and told to sit down below the height of the windows. And they weren't told what had happened, obviously, and they were singing songs to keep them occupied. Mm. And Jamie's class was in a porta cabin in the school playground. The, the, the school role was too big for the yep. accommodation that yep. they had. And he, he said that he thought they thought that somebody was on the roof, banging on the roof, and actually it was gunfire, but you never would think in a school that it was gunfire. In so, Scotland? In Scotland, in a tiny little place um, like Dunblane. And I had a toy shop in the town at the time. It was my <laughs> mum's toy shop, actually, and I used to go and, go and help her with it. And um, somebody called the shop um, to say, have you heard on, on the radio, it had been on the radio, that there had been a shooting at the school, there was a man in the playground with the gun. And I said, I, I said, what? Don't, don't be silly. Don't be ridiculous. And then, literally, I was saying, don't be ridiculous. And my mum ran through the door of the shop, and she said, "Have you heard what's happened? You need to get up to the school. There's been a shooting at the school." And I, I didn't, don't think I even said anything. I just grabbed my car keys and I ran and got my car, drove towards the school like every other parent, mm. um, and found the roads were all jammed understandably abandoned my car like everybody else and ran towards the school so I was with many other parents at the school gates for several hours um, this is in the days before mobile phones so mm. nobody knew what was going on I mean mm. it was really truly torture um, because obviously ambulances and police cars were arriving mm. um, but we didn't know what happened and then they they tried to move us from the school gates into some of the bigger houses and there's some small sort of hotels that were more like big houses yeah and I was sitting, um, sharing a chair, because there was nowhere near enough chairs for everybody, understandably, with a girl who had lived across the road from me since I was five. and uh, With kids in the school? Yeah, she had three kids in the school also. I, I had two. And um, so many years, many hours later, maybe about four hours after it happened, that somebody came in and said that um, all those parents who have children in... Mrs. Mayer's class, which was a primary one class, would you come with us? Oh my God, and, and that was Jamie's class? No, oh, that it, was was, it was my friend that I was sharing the chair with. Oh. So I had this thing of, she went, oh my God, that's my, ch that's my daughter's class. And I said, I'll come with you. And then they wouldn't let me go with her because it was just, just those them. parents. And I went through this, this horrendous feeling of being so relieved oh. that it wasn't my child's class mm. and feeling so guilty for feeling relieved yeah. and it was because it, it's a small place and yeah. not saying everybody knows everybody but you know a lot of people and um, yeah and I, I eventually a couple of hours after that I, I got Jamie and Andy out of the school and what I had to stop the car on the way home to explain to them what had happened because they didn't know and what impressed me so much about the fact that they didn't know they knew a man had been in the school with a gun that was all they knew was that the teachers had managed to keep the school going. They'd kept the kids in their individual classrooms. They'd fed them in the classrooms. And the teachers knew what, what, what had happened. There was ambulances and police cars going on. And I thought, what an incredible job those teachers did of keeping the kids calm and safe and 
not panicking themselves mm. and you know but it was it was one of those things where can I ask you what happened to your friend's daughter yeah she died she died there was um, f- 15 or 16 children died and, and the teacher and, and many were injured also so um, yeah it was a it was an incredibly tough time and not something you ever would have imagined you'd have to deal with but I'm very thankful that Jamie and Andy were too young to understand the enormity of yeah, it the horror um, Ab- absolutely, mm. um, and the the town shut down for a good a, a good couple of weeks after. It's very 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 quiet, apart from news oh, newscasters I, and uh, just, journalists. Uh, uh, it, uh, yeah, it, you and I know each other quite well, and we've never actually had that in depth uh, mm. conversation about it. I know it's difficult, so uh, but, but thanks for know, sharing. For, it, but for me, after after that, yeah. um, because it made me realise how. You, know, precious. You, you never know what's around the corner yeah. and yes how precious life is and you know I could have lost my kids that day yeah. and really from that from that moment I was like we are going to embrace life yeah. and we are going to go after everything that we want to do and for me working at the tennis club and creating an environment that is safe and yeah. fun and friendly mm. for the children in the town there became even more important to me yeah but yeah mm. you yeah you How, never so so Along those lines, how hard was it to send Andy away to Spain when you did, and, and why did you do that? Yeah, he was he was fifteen. Because I know you told went. me this story the other day, and yeah. I found it really interesting. He uh, yeah, he was fifteen when he went to Barcelona, and um, he was quite uh, adamant that he wasn't going to be going anywhere for his tennis. And then, uh, <laughs> and I was very aware that he had probably already run out of the environment that we could create in Scotland you know we have terrible weather with hardly any indoor courts and we actually had quite a good pool of sparring partners for him because we had a lot of decent level d- level kids including Jamie Baker and Colin Fleming he'd outgrown hitting with you is that what you say? yeah by about 12 yeah <laughs> by about 12 and then it was like yeah mum see you later run along <laughs> yeah but he uh, he went to play for Great Britain in against Spain European 16 under team championships and it was in Andorra and um he came on the phone, uh, Spain won 2-1 in the final. Rafa won his singles, Andy won his singles, and then Spain won the doubles. So he came on the phone uh, what? later on that night. Who was his doubles night. partner? Jamie Baker. Oh, Jamie. <laughs> it's all about Jamie. Who was Rafa's partner? Marcel Granollers, I think. Oh, I that's think. a tough... That's yeah. a, he's they're, a good they're player. A, they're a year older than Andy, if you know oh, what I mean. Amazing. They're the Spanish kids. But, yeah, they go back a long way. Oh, and, and Novak as well. They've yeah. all known each other oh, since great. they were sort of 11 and 12. So they're all part of our furniture, um, which is lovely. <laughs> But yeah, um, so he comes on the phone and normally when he would phone home, something was wrong. A typical boy, yeah. um, lost my passport, lost my wallet, <laughs> something like that. So on it comes. Mum, how do I do the laundry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of thing. How do you switch the washing machine on? What temperature should I put at? So yeah, the phone, phone. I'm holding the phone up and uh, it's, would you pay for this uh, international call oh, yeah. from Andorra? Of course, reverse the Back charges. Back in the day. Of course, that was the only way to get through. So I said, yeah, and then I said, what's wrong? And he said, I've just been playing racquetball with Rafa. And you know what? He doesn't go to school. He gets to train on clay, in the sunshine, in Mallorca. And he gets to hit with Carlos Moya. And he's shouting down Every the day. Yeah, every day. And uh, what have I got? You and my brother at the university. <laughs> I want to go to Spain. And, I, you know, there was part of me, I was like holding the phone about, you know, a foot, a foot away. away. And uh, there was part of me that was sort of half smiling because I was thinking, that's what it takes. It takes somebody else to let them realise that actually you need more than you can get. But also, if this is what you want to do and you want to keep up, 
um, you're going to have to go somewhere else. And of course, we were, Barcelona, which was what Rafa was advising, was is the hotbed of European tennis, tennis and yeah. so many people play there. And anyway, we went and had a look at a couple of academies in Easter time when he'd had the match with Rafa was February. And he started in the August. The biggest challenge was trying to find the money mm-hmm. to, to put together because it's a bit like going to a, an expensive boarding school that specialises in tennis. You know, yep. there's a school on site and so forth. So finding the money because developing a young tennis player is incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive. Finding a training environment with coaches who know what they're doing and, and enough like-minded sparring partners across a variety of ages is absolutely crucial. Um, and then you still need the balance of social or mm-hmm. pastoral and schooling mm-hmm. as well as the tennis when they're 15, 16. But um, they they had pretty much everything on site there and it was a short low-cost airline flight from Edinburgh or Glasgow to Barcelona and mm-hmm. the academy was literally on the, at the back of the airport Ugh. so it wasn't it didn't ever feel like he was that far away to, yep. to, to be honest you're very shy on Twitter um, but like one of the I try things not to be. Yeah, well, no, I, I love it it's, you and I kindred spirits on that way but, but about making public tennis free for everyone because it is an expensive sport and you brackets and all this sort of thing and it really is you know through the years it's just like golf a white rich sport how do you change that and I know you you have some ideas on that yeah I, I do because it's my it's my biggest bugbear about tennis is that it's perceived as difficult to access difficult to do and expensive yeah. and um, I've worked very hard over the last four years in Scotland to build a bigger and stronger workforce around the country in deprived and rural areas where, or areas where you wouldn't normally expect to find tennis and these can, are areas where often you have no courts and you certainly won't have a workforce mm-hmm. and often you don't have money to pay even if you did have a workforce so I build workforces out of the local community so that can be anything from parents to teachers to students to youth leaders coaches of other sports and I invest, invest my time in my van I've got a van full of equipment and another coach oh God, I that I it. work with literally Julie van go in. it is it's a van on the road we, we call it tennis on the road because we just get in the van and we and we go to places where they want to have tennis because the excitement over tennis in Scotland over the last 10 years has gone through the roof and prior to that it was very much a minority sport so hence you don't find tennis courts in state schools Mm -hmm. very few public courts left because we lost them all 30 years ago when the government sold off playing fields for car parks and retail and Mm -hmm. housing etc and now when people want to play you, you can't find those courts and you can't find a space to build them anyway but my theory is that you know, when I grew up, there were no coaches. You learn from your parents and from the other people in the club. Mm-hmm. So it is possible to become a good tennis player without having formal coaching. Yep. And it kills me that more people than ever before, certainly in our country, have coaching or lessons. We've become a nation of lesson takers. Yep. But we have less people than ever before playing the game. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yep. Because it just becomes a programmed activity. So for me, it's about investing in people who can then deliver the game to others yeah. that want to get started in whatever space they've got available with whatever equipment yeah, they have. It, we just need a wall. Yeah. I mean, I grow up hitting against a wall often. And I had a great coach when I was nine, you know, when I started really getting into tennis, eight and nine. He was just so passionate about the sport. Uh, I mean, for me, the number one word that I find in, you know, all the podcasts that I've done and various things, talk to people, um, is that the number one word to be successful or to have anything that's successful is passion yeah you have to have passion yeah. I mean and do you feel like that's the most important thing is actually to thrust passion back into Scotland when it comes to tennis and obviously it is because of what Jamie and Andy have done and you um, but you know is is that is, is it more about passion or is it more about accessibility I think the passion is what kickstart kickstarts things off mm. in people yeah um, there are always challenges with finding facilities, um, finding coaches, finding the money to pay for things. But I think that with what I'm trying to do, my theory is that the boys have created a demand or an interest mm -hmm. in tennis. If you build the workforce first in each local area and you get the teachers delivering it in badminton courts in schools or in the school playground or you stick mini nets up on the artificial grass football pitches, yeah. you can start to develop the skills that you need to play tennis. That creates a demand of its own within a community mm -hmm. and then it's much easier to influence the school or the local authority to put some courts in because you've got a workforce, demand. Yeah. you've got the demand. Yeah. Yeah. If you go the other way around and say put courts in and then you go, oh, we haven't got any coaches or anybody who knows how to deliver tennis, it's back to front. So I can't build all the courts around Scotland but I can build workforces yeah. and I can hopefully pass my passion on to many others mm -hmm. by showing them how to make tennis fun and stimulating and doable and get the kids outside and get them off their yeah, ipads and their air, iphones get and off the couch yeah get off the couch go couch i can't say it like that but um you know get them outside get them playing especially in scotland yeah. where the weather's not exactly the greatest all year round but when it is get outside yeah. have fun All right, so we're at Wimbledon. We're, we're actually in the IMG house here in, in Wimbledon Village, and Wimbledon's almost over. But, um, all right, so a little fun question. Henman Hill or Murray Mound? Oh, Henman, <laughs> it's Henman Hill. I, I love it. I love that you said that. Yeah, it's Henman Hill because I think that from when I first came to Wimbledon as a student and queued up with my friends and came in, it was Henman Hill, and I saw one of the days where Tim played Goran. Remember the match yep. that went over three days? I, I was there on one of those days and sat in the rain for ages. And anyway. Thought you were at home. But I was on, I was on, yeah. <laughs> no, I brought it with me, that's what everybody kept saying. But I, I sat on Henman Hill. And it's like, you know, when you meet someone for the first time, if you are introduced to them by a certain name, let's say it's Andrew, yeah. and then many years later you meet them, you still think Andrew rather than Andy. Yeah. So for me, that's the same with Henman Hill. Yeah. I know that as Henman Hill, and I will always call it, Isn't that, isn't that crazy to think about that you queued and of course you grew up playing tennis, you're a very good tennis player in, in your own right, but you grew up, you queue at Wimbledon, you get in, you're so excited, you can't even get on the major courts because you've got to sit on Henman Hill, which is the beauty of Wimbledon, right? And then, you know, X amount of years later, you're sitting in 
you know, the, a player's box. I know, on the centre court, on watching the your centre kids. court, watching your kids. How amazing is that story? And to how hard is it to watch your kids? Because I know you're doing yeah. it now because Jamie's in the finals of mixed doubles again. Um, but how hard is it for you? Yeah, it's... It, it's um, like, be honest, how many swear words do you say to yourself oh, in a five-set match? Lots, and I... You know, I I know enough um, to sit. I sit with my hand over my mouth sometimes, and it might look so like Andy I'm being very pensive, but I'm actually swearing into my hand because I don't want anybody else to pick me up on lip reader service on the television or anything like that. Yeah, I find it really really stressful. I mean, I've always found it stressful, but I think any parent will tell you the same thing. You know, it doesn't matter what your child is doing. You want things to go right for them. You know perfectly well when they're out there on their own, there's nothing you can do other than be supportive when they're looking up. I also learned from my kids from, from a very young age and from lots of the other kids that I worked with telling me stories about how their parents made them Work. feel when they oh, looked up. Yeah. I learned a lot about the importance of presenting a really positive positive image whatever is happening don't look because your kids pick up on everything from you so oh yeah trust me I, I, I sadly for my mother I, I could hear I promise you when I tell you this when I would play junior matches I could hear my mum if I got a little upset on the court which happened often I could hear my mum go I could hear that. I could hear <laughs> the disapproval. I could hear the disapproval <laughs> of my mother, and I used to get so upset because it was just anything to like make me mad. So I get it. I get it. Yeah. They pick up on everything. Absolutely you do. everything. They know at what point in the match you went out to the to toilet, the loo, and why were you talking to so and so when I was serving at five three. You know, stuff like that. They they see everything. So you know, so you can't a, move your head. You 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 can't move at all. So if 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 you see me in the player box, and I always look like quite. Stoic. Yeah, quite stressed. I, I tend to try to not wear my sunglasses so because I believe in that whole thing of being able to see somebody's Eye eyes. Yeah. Um, so I try not to, to do that. But yeah, I'm really trained on the boys from the minute they start. I rarely take my eyes off them, even when they're sitting at the changeovers. because, And that's been for many years of them being small and you're the only person watching. Yeah. And when they look up, and they don't look up very much, much no. they know that they've got your attention and because I've seen that you know like when Andy especially when he was young and you're the only person there somebody comes and talks to you and he'll stand and go mom watch you know like age 10 yeah yeah look at me (laughs) nothing changes no from the the time you're a kid you're like mom 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 and you're like what you what and it's just nothing it's mundane but yeah you want you to see it's the approval your parents are so important yeah it is i mean that moment when andy ran up into the box i remember having tears because i just thought my first thought was for what it must feel like for someone like you and of course your ex-husband and the father and parents of a wimbledon champion that have grown up and the pressure that Andy has on his shoulders and yeah. Jamie in mixed doubles here or doubles. Yeah. yeah. That it's you can't describe to Americans. Australians get it a little bit, but you can't describe to anyone how much pressure is on the shoulders of the British players when they play at Wimbledon. Yeah. And Andy handles it so well. Yeah. Why? And how? I think uh, he's he's been really remarkable because he's carried the weight of British tennis expectation on his shoulders for from a very young age because I mean he was quite young when Tim and Greg retired yeah and so it was really at the slams he was the one who was had all the attention a contender and you know being uh, you know from when he from when he won US Open juniors in 2004 he was constantly being asked in media interviews when are you going to win a slam when when are you going to win Wimbledon when are you going to win Wimbledon 
it was all in British media anyway yeah. it's all about Wimbledon and I'd watched through Tim's career who had an unbelievable career yeah. 10 years in the top 10 phenomenal consistent yeah. career and yet there are so many was people never enough. who still call him a failure because why because he didn't win Wimbledon and it's like are you kidding me but that's so everything you know for him I remember when he won it and he said you know what I won't get asked one more question time. again and then what happened was when are you going to win Wimbledon again yeah, yeah. <laughs> you told me the story because I was always so confused because when Andy won his first Wimbledon he turned around the opposite way from the players box yeah and he gave it a come on it was just this moment of like and there's sometimes where there's spectators that are actually in that section because I had friends when I played my final Wimbledon in that section as well as the player box yeah and so I thought there was maybe some people out there but you told me a different story, which I freaking love. And it shows you a lot about him. Yeah, he was on the... And his sense of humour. He was on the far end of the court, or the opposite end of the court, from yeah. the player box. Yeah. But um, it, was that, uh, it, it was that whole thing of he turned round to the press section. It, the press section was there where he turned round to. And he absolutely... It was almost like... I, a, never again. Yeah. Never well, ask me again. <laughs> yeah, some, something like that. Or just, you know... You right, probably said a few swear words, maybe. But, you know, I think there's been... I think the, the British media is, is tough. It's really, really tough. They're very unforgiving. Um, there are so many daily and Sunday papers, more than any other country. Yeah. And so, you you know, so whether if he wins something or more if he doesn't win something or if he has a disappointing defeat, you've got the world and his wife, all the ex-players come out, they write columns on... You know, well, he didn't do this right. Yeah, Should have done that. Why didn't he do his that? Coach, forehand's not why good didn't he, enough. Why did he employ Emily Moresmo? What? Yeah, you know, all was, stupid you know, stuff. Speculation on everything, yeah. criticism. You know, all, all the time. And I think because of what I'd seen with with the way that Tim was kind treated, of treated, I reckoned he'll never be forgiven anything. He'll, you know, he'll never be um, recognised as the brilliant player that he is. Yeah. And everything that he's had to carry for the nation's hopes for yeah. so many years, until he actually wins Wimbledon. Yeah, and I think he knew that as well. Oh, and that's it was so crazy. It was um, yeah. You told me that story, and he said he turned around to the press, and it was basically at them. Yeah. And before, I mean, you have to understand that as a, as, a, as a listener right now, that you win the greatest moment of your life. He'd won mm. the U.S. Open already, so he'd had that moment of winning a Grand Slam where he looked like it was no big deal, which mm. I always found so fascinating as well. But he had that moment, was the greatest moment that he could share with his family and his player box. And the first thing he did was turn around the opposite way. I just want people to understand how someone British, Scottish, English, that has to deal with the press and deal with that stress. And that's what it made him do on the yeah. biggest, most important moment of his life. And so I just found that so fascinating. Also tells you a lot about him, of how much he keeps it in, because he's never yeah. said anything negative. Um, but that was his way of showing... You know, okay, enough is enough. Yeah. I've done it now, so you can all f off. <laughs> kind <laughs> yeah, of thing, right? Was, um, yeah, I think it was very much. You know, there had been so much questioning of if he would ever win a slam. So much speculation of he'll never win a slam. You know, he's not a winner. He's a choker. He's a loser, and he's none of those. Oh things. my God, he's none and, of those things. And it was like you've had to read and put up with so much stuff yeah. for so many years now because his first slam final was 2008 yeah. this is five years later 2013 I mean and the Wimbledon. guys that he lost to 
I mean, he never lost to someone that he was supposed to necessarily... strongest era ever of men's tennis. (laughs) It's crazy. Novak, Rafa, uh, you know, uh, Roger. It's crazy. And, you know, he had to get through those guys to win his slams. And I just find it amazing. I just love that. All right, so we know that you're obsessed with tennis. We know that you have passion for that, like, oodles of it. But I want to know how... Somebody actually asked me this on Twitter as well. The obsession with cakes... (laughs) <laughs> because no you, I mean Jude you're in yeah. pretty good shape is that your daily diet of a cake every <laughs> single day because if anyone follows you on Twitter it's like it's like a daily obsession for you yeah I'm, I'm, I am a bit of a cakeist and, or a puddingist um, I can't say that I always eat all of them but but you try them all I do try them all yeah. I do try them all um, yeah have a sweet tooth I mean Scotland is very famous in not such a good way for having sweet tooth. We are unfortunately one of the most obese nations in uh, in Europe. I have a brother-in-law who is uh, from Scottish descent and every Christmas um, mum cooks, his mother cooks the most fattening food I've ever seen in my life. But for one day of the year I can handle it. But my God, if that's the daily routine, (laughs) you guys need to get some nutrition books. (laughs) And we need to exercise more, which of course is our point. Get out in the fresh air and get off the couch. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Get moving. You actually do have a great sense of humour. So I, th- I think that you have passed that down to your boys. But that comes from your mum because you give your mum some shit on Twitter as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you, you wrote something the other day about um, Jamie. Uh, Jamie played an incredible mixed doubles match. He comes back from 5-1 and you called your mum. I love that you call your mum still and, you know, you, did you see? And then what does she say to you? <laughs> she said, well... Yes, but he took so long that my fish pie dried up and it ruined our tea. You know, like, I'm like, Mum, whatever. You know, like, that was an unbelievable match. Yes, I know it took three sets and almost three hours, but really... You've ruined the fish pie. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, you kind of need your parents, don't you, to keep you grounded. And the important things in life to them are food and their dog. And, and, oh, you have the... uh, The dogs are important in the Murray family, I know that. Um, Grandkids... How the how you, do you want to get them into tennis? Would you even consider like trying to push them into tennis? I think um, they. I think. I mean, because it's a big legacy. That will be entirely up to uh, up to uh, Andy and Kim. But I was talking to Tim the other day about his daughters, and they're fifteen, thirteen, and ten now. And I said, "Do they play tennis?" And he said, mm, "Just really recreationally." But he said, "It's a tough thing. The the name." Having the name Henman, you know, you go you, Murray. You, yeah, you go into a sport that your family is excellent at. Yeah, and he said he was quite glad that they didn't go down that route because he thought it would just have actually just caused a lot of hassle. Yeah, that's like with Steffi and Andre. Um, you know, can you imagine being their kids playing yeah. tennis? No yeah. chance. Andre, uh, uh, you know, the the son is a very good baseball player, so I think safe to say it'll, he'll, he'll be a decent yeah. baseball player he is actually he's getting recruited already to college so you you as a, a mum as a tennis coach as somebody you know the passion like what do you want the legacy for um, the boys to be and you to be in tennis and do you do you find it a bit of a push and pull with the LTA um, like trying to get them to see things from your perspective or trying to work with them a little bit more and I know you're working with the WTA like what's the one thing that you want to leave like what would be the most important thing for you to leave behind um as a legacy not not only the boys but you well i've um at the design stage of a, a multi-sport tennis center which will be just outside dumbling mm-hmm. um, where we come from 
and it will have tennis at the heart of it. Um, but it's very much a family-focused, community, pay-and-play, multi-sports centre. So it will have six-hole golf course for people to learn how to play golf, golf. in a doable one hour it takes to do six holes. Um, it'll have indoor and outdoor tennis, it'll have paddle tennis, it'll have mini courts, it'll have a huge hitting wall, like a monster hitting wall. Great. Because yeah. hey, I'll <laughs> the tell ball you, always comes back. I tell you also, uh, I promise you, uh, whenever I see kids uh, hit volleys, you know, I say, listen, do me a favour, go over to the wall and try and hit those volleys on that wall. And if you can't hit three in a row, you have wrong technique. Mm-hmm. So it's it's also you can bring me up, Judy. I'll, I'm happy to do yeah. a, 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 do it a volley, lesson, <laughs> a volley lesson with the kids. But it's true. Like people, like everyone out there, like if you want to learn yeah. how to volley, actually yeah. go and try it on a wall. Because yeah. if you can't volley consecutively on a wall, close to the wall, then you have the wrong technique. Yeah. And so that's important. I always tell people that build tennis centers. I'm like, it needs a wall. Yeah, it needs a wall. Make sure there's a wall. It's the most obvious thing because the whole thing of you need somebody to play with. Yeah. And if you haven't got somebody to play with. You can't play yeah. unless there's a wall. So the, the wall is important. But this this the centre will have, um, you know, it'll have the golf will have a driving range and a fun crazy golf and fun uh, like putt putt hill, yeah. hilly putting, you yeah. know. But to make it a destination, to make golf fun, in the same way that we will make tennis, tennis fun, you know, we we're going to have um, one of the courts is going to have those light up lines so that you can mm-hmm. flick switch and it. And it's a tennis court. Flick another switch, and it's four mini courts. Flick another switch, and it's oh, a badminton this is court. Awesome. And you, did you raise? How did you raise the money for that? Well, we because everyone's going to think, oh yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, you're rich and blah blah blah. But it's not about that. You no have way. to raise the money. And we've set it up as a charitable trust. So if it ever makes any money, I mean, the idea is to is to make it sustainable, mm-hmm. so that we can keep tennis and golf cheap and accessible, because we'll have a lot of leisure facilities around it, which should make money that will offset the sport side of it. So we'll have two five-a-side football pitches, we'll have climbing walls, soft play, a tag active zone, which is more aimed at teenagers, we'll have an activity, um, adventure playground, we'll have fit trails through the woods. So it's all wrapped up in getting families active and having lots of things in the same place. Um, So that if you're a family with two kids or three kids, and one wants to do golf, one wants to do tennis, one wants to go on the adventure playground. They can all be there together. They can all be there together and it's all... Is there an age... Is there an age that you can come? come? Can no. I come? Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you can come. You can get, yeah, I mean, we'll have soft play, you know, for, for, for little kids. Yeah. Um, we'll have Adventure Playground. We'll, it will have sections in it for different, uh-huh. different ages yeah. and, and, and stages. It'll have a gym and a, a cafe and changing rooms. And, and we're going to do the cafe out like a kind of hard rock cafe. Uh-huh except with Jamie and Andy's memorabilia. Oh, that's awesome. Like a Tennessee sort of Will they of be thing. a part of it quite a bit when they retire? I think when they retire. Have you recruited them already? Yeah, they, they will be recruited, believe me. But I've done it all myself because... Yeah, I know you have. Um, because they have to do what they have to do. But yeah. that will be our bricks and mortar legacy to our area and to tennis because for once, finally, I will have a base to work from and I will be able to create... What's it going to be called? I don't know. We haven't, haven't decided, decided on that yet. We haven't decided on that yet. It's... It's aiming to open at um, summer 2020, autumn 2020. So we're not quite got there yet, but we have 19 house plots on the land. Oh, so you can buy houses there as well. That we can sell. Wow. Well, we sell the house plots, and the money from the house plots will offset some of the sporting stuff. We will still have, need gap funding for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we finish the design and the business plan, then we can go out and find sponsors, philanthropists, mm-hmm. investors. Again, I hear the word 
passion. If yeah. you don't have the passion, you yeah. can't do something of this enormity oh, no. unless your your end result, just like winning Wimbledon, just like being number one in the world, anything in business, you have to have the passion for the end result. And the end yeah. result is to have something that you have envisioned your whole I mean, I yeah. think you've envisioned this your whole life. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not the mum's toy store. No. It's your toy store, yeah. right? This is, yeah, your to- yeah. this is your toy store. Yeah, And You're for right. the boys. You're right. It, and it is, a, when I was a young mum, you know, we were always having to drive to the nearest yeah. big town oh, I to get find it. cricket me. and rugby. Yeah. And you just end up becoming like a taxi driver in a human ATM machine. So yeah. actually having everything <laughs> in one place, um, to me, makes total sense. And, you know, our interest in it is not commercial. It is in a healthier nation. It's, for me, a base from which I can build a workforce for yeah. Scotland because people can come to me with their young players. Yeah. And, you know, and if if we make a really good sporting and business model out of this, it could very easily be replicated around anyway. Scotland. Mm-hmm. And then if we had, I don't know, eight of these across Scotland, I don't mean I want eight of them. Yeah. I'm very happy just to have one, <laughs> but somebody could take the model. Yeah. Then share our sport would be in a much healthier position further down the line. Or sport in general. Yeah, yeah. And just a healthier, fitter, more active nation is what underpins all of it. Yeah. But if I can build a tennis workforce for Scotland from that base with my van as well, because I, maybe yeah. somebody else is going out in my van, but yeah. I'll, I'll go out in your van, van with you. <laughs> You'd love it. Oh, I, I, I would love guarantee it. Can it's we the camp? Best fun ever. Can we camp? Do we, we camp well, or do we stay hot? No, not, no, not advisable. No. What about in the summer? Don't you have decent weather in the summer? We ha- sometimes we have decent weather. We've had a good summer this summer, yeah. but you have to watch out in Scotland for the midges. These are tiny little they flies. They bite the shit out of you. Yeah, you just... No, you've got to be in a fly tent or something like that. I think we're... I, I would, you know, I know that you can provide me with some safety there. If it's not, I don't want fly, I don't want fly spray all over me, though. It's, it's that's sticky and uncomfortable. <laughs> all right, so last question, Judy, because um, I love you to death, because we get along so well, we could sit and talk about tennis and passion for hours and hours and hours as we do when we see each other um if i get asked the question by parents all the time what what do i do you know they come to me and i don't have kids but i tell them what was important for me as a kid um and what was the most important thing to make me have passion for the sport and you do have to have passion Mm -hmm. i've heard it all week from rafa i heard it all week from roger every serena what she's doing um and uh, you know her, her achievements it's all about passion. They want to play. They want to just play tennis. You know, Kim Kleiss has talked about she can honestly say she never played for money. It was Tennis court is about, it was her psychologist, it was everything for her when she was going through hard times losing her father. So I want to know from you who not only grew up playing tennis yourself and was a very good player in your own right and have brought up two wonderful tennis players and two wonderful kids, um, what would you, what's the most... Like if someone came to you and you had to sum it up in one minute, what do you tell them? A parenting of of a uh, what you know if a parent came to you and said, Judy, how do I, you know, they're going to ask you the question, how do I make my kid or how do I get my kid into tennis? What's the most important thing for me as a parent with a kid who wants to play tennis? I think probably the most important thing is to understand as much as you can about what tennis is going to demand of the child. Because if you don't play tennis, you need to understand what it's going to demand of them in terms of playing the game and then the sort of life around it, the environment around it. And, you know, when you play tennis, you're out there on your own unless you're playing doubles. And so we need to, we need to develop independent, problem-solving kids. And 
parents always have far more access to the kids than the coaches will do. So I think it's that making that triangle between the parent, the player and the coach and understanding everybody's role within it. But I think that parents, what underpins everything, of course, is your unconditional support for helping them to... You create the opportunities as a parent for them in life. So you often have to create those opportunities through sports coaches and maybe clubs can do some of it but in an individual sport the onus is on the parents to make things happen for the kids so the and more is it you important can understand, to understand their personalities oh totally understand well you know your child as a person better than anybody else so you know what they will react and respond to so i've always found myself along in recent years whenever andy changes coaches you spend a lot of time talking to them about more about how they are, how their their personality, to help the coaches to sort of fast track that a little bit because mm-hmm. the better you know them as a person, the more chance you have to influence a performance or an improvement out of them. And sometimes coaches don't have a whole lot of time to get to know them as people. So yeah. but I, I think for you know for parents understand what tennis will demand of them on the court and around the court. For me, probably from about Andy being 15, it was about finding the right people, the right environment at the, at the right time. Mm-hmm. And because you change all the time, you need different you know, horses for courses, different people at different stages of the development. But the unconditional support, of course, has to be there. And when they're young, to ensure that the parents understand that it's not about winning and losing. It's actually about the long-term development of the skills uh, that you need to be able to play what is a complex cerebral sport well mm. well judy thanks um so much for <laughs> joining welcome. me and i know that you've got to watch jamie in a, another mixed uh, doubles final so you've got the stress of that match but i know i, I know but i know uh, more importantly about that is that you just you love the fact that he's having success as well yeah. um that he gets the due that is he's deserved of especially being the older brother um, and I just want to thank you for giving back to the sport because it's important to have people like you, especially strong women like you, um, in our sport and, um, you know, as a, as a former female player and somebody who loves the sport as much as you are. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure, for always. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Ruggieri, Taylor Dalton, and the team at ACAST. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.